Welcome to Educate, Caring Activist Teachers for Equity, the podcast about all things education and equity. I'm Jennifer Martin from the University of Illinois at Springfield. Our conversation with Dr. Susan Strauss was recorded in 2019 before COVID. There have been some updates to Title IX since then. I'd like to share some of these updates with you. According to the website Citizen Ed, students are walking out of school to demand better protections from sexual harassment and assault. At the time of this recording, October 2021, in several states, we have student activists demanding their rights. For example, in New York City, New York City schools recently settled a $700,000 lawsuit brought by four survivors of color with disabilities. And we will put these links in the show notes for you to read the stories. In Baltimore, students walked out of class demanding that the school district address sexual assault allegations. Outside of Pittsburgh, parents formed an alliance to address their district's mishandling of reported sexual assault incidents. In Northwest Arkansas, a federal lawsuit charges a school district with disregarding athletes' sexual abuse of students. A California school district paid $11 million to settle a lawsuit brought by survivors of sexual abuse. In Berkeley, California, students forced a reckoning following decades of abuse. Students in grades 8 through 11 report experiencing sexual harassment. 87% indicated that this had a negative impact on them. 56% of girls, 40% of boys, and 75% of transgender students in K-12 schools are sexually harassed. At least 20% of school-aged girls, 3% of school-aged boys experience sexual battery, assault, or rape. Girls of color are disproportionately impacted by sexual harassment and stop sexual assault in schools estimate that at least 10% of K-12 students are victims of educator or staff sexual misconduct. But as you will learn in this podcast, Title IX is a civil rights law that protects people in K-12 schools from sex discrimination. Those people include students, faculty, staff, and whistleblowers. Schools are responsible to protect the civil rights of their students. According to Stop Sexual Assault, in schools, there is a popular hashtag, hands off nine, hashtag H-A-N-D-S-O-F-I-X. And this was a response created to oppose the U.S. Department of Education's proposed amendments to Title IX regulations in 2020 under former Secretary Betsy DeVos. 
these changes would have dangerously impacted college students and K-12 students. Those changes included narrowing the definition of sexual harassment so students would have to endure escalation before the school would respond. Permitting schools to ignore cyber sexual harassment or sexual harassment that occurs off campus. Allowing students to delay their Title IX investigations indefinitely. Placing more obstacles in the path of student survivors who want their schools to protect their rights to an education free from sexual harassment. Allowing a school to ignore a complaint of sexual harassment unless someone notifies a school official who was authorized to take quote unquote corrective measures. And that provision was struck from the final rule. Requiring student survivors of ongoing sexual harassment or sexual assault to make a formal complaint before the school could take Title IX action and offer supportive measures. According to Stop Sexual Assault in Schools, sexual harassment is a widespread problem and it impacts more than just the victim. Quoting from the website, the harassment bleeds into the entire school community because students who witness or hear about it also become anxious. Sexual harassment is a community problem. If you want to know more and do more in your own school community, go to the website, SASH Club, Students Against Sexual Harassment. It's a website that offers free resources to empower youth ages 13 plus to address the impact of sexual harassment and assault in your school, in your community, in your personal life. The SASH Club resources provide ready to use inclusive peer-to-peer -peer education for school clubs, youth serving organizations, individual use, and more. And we will put that link in the show notes. As you may or may not know, every school district is responsible to hire and train a Title IX coordinator to educate and to oversee complaints. The name and contact information of the Title IX coordinator should be made public. Title IX coordinators are often not adequately trained in gender equity, in sexual harassment information, sexual assault information, and thus they are unable to effectively carry out investigations. Dr. Susan Strauss is a national and international speaker, trainer, consultant, and a recognized expert on workplace and school harassment and bullying. She also consults with organizations in management development, organization development, and change management, including providing assistance with diversity and inclusion initiatives. Her work incorporates unconscious bias, consulting, and working as an expert witness. She conducts harassment and bullying investigations and functions as a consultant to attorneys, as well as an expert witness in harassment lawsuits. Her clients are from global business, education, healthcare, law, nonprofit, and government organizations in both the public and private sectors. Dr. Strauss has conducted research, written over 30 books, book chapters, and journal articles on harassment, bullying, and related topics. Her most recent book is Sexual Harassment and Bullying, 
a guide to keeping kids safe and holding schools accountable. We are very honored to welcome Dr. Susan Strauss to the Educate podcast today. Welcome, Dr. Strauss. Mm, it sounds good. Thank you. Yeah. So the Educate podcast is geared to pre-service and in-service teachers. And I've been reading and, and reading recent research and, and hearing from my colleagues lately that since the 2016 election, bullying and harassment has gone up in schools. Can you maybe, before we talk about that, tell us the difference in your estimation between bullying and harassment and why are there, why is there such a, a problem with the two being linked and, and confused? Yes, the two terms are conflated, and the distinction is critical, uh, mainly because bullying has no federal law to make it actionable, and even though there are a smattering of state laws, they are not actionable, which means bullying, uh, if a student or a faculty member is being bullied, oh, isn't that too bad? Because there's no law that protects them. Whereas for harassment of any of the protected classes, and when we're talking about a protected class, there's a wide variety. You've got your federal protected classes, you've got your state, and you've got city. And protected class is referring to a group of people that share the same characteristics. So all of us in belong to numerous protected classes, for example, age, race, uh, religion, gender, slash sex, etc. And the difference then between bullying and harassment is part of it is dealing with causation, but the other is that harassment is a violation of civil rights. So it's a violation of the laws. And there are a number of laws in which any kind of harassment would be violating. So Title IX, for example, deals with sex equity. In the schools we've got, and in the workplace, we've got the American Disabilities Act, as well as the 504 Act. Uh, we've got religious discrimination and disability discrimination. So there are a number of forms that discrimination and harassment can take, all of which are illegal under the various laws. Whereas for bullying, there is no law that it makes the misconduct actionable, meaning you can't sue under it. What I find in the work that I do as an expert witness is that the lawsuits that are brought against quote-unquote bullying deal with another kind of tort law, primarily negligence. But you cannot sue under quote bullying. So that's a huge distinction. When students or faculty and other employees that work within a school district are being targeted for discrimination and harassment, their civil rights are being violated according to the law. Whereas if they are targeted by bullying, there is no law that protects them against bullying. 
the term bullying is sort of the default label that has been implemented by schools nationally. And it's a shame because what that does is it interferes with the school district's understanding of the two forms of misconduct. Therefore, they don't end up responding the way that they should based on their policies. So their policies are not adhered to, which causes a continuation of harassment and discrimination towards students. In addition, in my experience, school districts are often more concerned about their reputation and the word getting out that this form of misconduct is occurring rather than protecting students. Uh, sometimes what I will see, particularly if it's a teacher who is, we'll say, sexually harassing a student, that faculty will rally behind the teacher. Very often, students will rally behind the teacher so that the victim becomes re-victimized. Their family can be victimized then by the entire community with such things as throwing bricks through their house's windows, damaging their car. Uh, I've seen it where families have had to move out of town because of the retaliation that the entire family is subjected to based on bringing formal charges against a teacher. You are a registered nurse and you also have a doctorate in education, but you know a lot about the law. How did you get interested in, in studying and, and your advocacy work on, on issues around harassment and sexual harassment specifically? Well, it came about kind of a weird way. Back in 1988, I was teaching and we had our first presenter come in to the school and teach us about sexual harassment, but it was really dealing with it only in the workplace. So a colleague and I had overheard our students, these were juniors and seniors in high school, talking about being sexually harassed. That's all we were looking at at that time. Harassment of other protected classes wasn't even on the horizon. And we decided that we would put together a educational program for these kids to learn about sexual harassment at work. You know, they were almost all working. They were juniors and seniors, which we did. And we also surveyed them. And as sort of an afterthought, instead of just asking them what their experiences were in the workplace, we thought, well, for the heck of it, let's just see what they're experiencing in school. And it was like opening Pandora's box. At that point, this was like 88, might have been 87, uh, the students, about 30% of them were being sexually harassed at work, but 50% were being sexually harassed at school. Now at this point, the boys were not acknowledging that they were being sexually harassed at all. It was just the girls. And it was like I said, opening Pandora's box to see what they were experiencing in the school. So this was through, uh, then I got a call from the Minnesota Department of Ed 
and they asked if I would formally put together a curriculum that they could distribute throughout the state of Minnesota to teach middle school and high school kids about sexual harassment. So we did train the trainer of the teachers for them to train the kids. As we worked on it more and more, then we started to get phone calls from elementary teachers saying that they were seeing sexual harassment among students as young as first grade. We were shocked. So we were asked to put together a curriculum that could be used to teach elementary students about sexual harassment. So we actually put together two curricula. One of them was for kindergarten through third grade, I think, and the other one was fourth, fifth, and sixth. And it was called Girls and Boys Getting Along Teaching Sexual Harassment in the Elementary Classroom. Now, this was a long time ago. We do it much differently now, but it was brand new. We used beautiful, beautiful hand puppets that were soft and cuddly, and their names were Dignity, Respect, and Equality. And one was a snail, one was a turtle, and one was a, oh, I can never remember what the third one was. At any rate, um, so it was the, these puppets, basically, that did a lot of the teaching to the kids. And the kids would come up and disclose their abuse at home, particularly to the turtle, because the turtle could retract its head into its shell. Well, interestingly, one of the activities that we had in that curriculum was a outline of a boy and a girl, just an outline. In fact, I don't even think it was a boy and a girl, come to think of it. It was just a neuter child. I don't think we had eyes, ears, nothing. It was just the outline. And they were supposed to have an activity with their parents where they would identify breasts and genitals. Now, I wanted to use the word genitals, um, such as penis and vulva. You know, I'm a nurse. I taught anatomy and physiology. To me, they are correct anatomical terms. Um, I wrote this with three other people. Two of us believed in using correct terminology. The other two said, let's just say parts covered by your bathing suit, which to me was way off. So then they changed it to private parts, which I still disagreed with, but we compromised. But we had parents that were angry that this was an activity they were to do with their children because we used the word breast. I was shocked. Believe it or not, the, this went all the way to the Department of Ed and to our Minnesota governor got involved and we had to, the Department of Ed had to withhold sending out any more of those curriculum to schools around the state and we were getting requests for the curriculum around the country. Gradually it was reintroduced but it shows you back in the day the sensitivity about using correct anatomical terms. Um, then we got involved with the Attorney General's office in Minnesota and did some research to determine the extent of harassment, sexual, this was still sexual harassment, in elementary schools, middle schools, and high schools. And found that, that um, it was 
It was problematic. Nobody really knew how to deal with it. In the meantime, I was starting to get involved as an expert witness for sexual harassment lawsuits. When the bullying tsunami hit, it was much better to use the word bullying, according to the schools, rather than harassment. And nobody wanted to do any harassment training anymore. It was all about bullying. Now, what, what would you say the time frame is when the word bullying really became popularized? You know, that's a good question. Um, let's see, this is 2019. My first book came out in 1992, and we were not using bullying then. I'm just thinking out loud here. My last book came out in 2012. And I know bullying was kind of the norm by then. So I'm going to say that it's been problematic for maybe 15 years. That's a that's a guess. Okay. Uh, and when they're talking about LGBTQ kids, they're still using the term bullying when it's right. harassment. And it really ends up hurting kids. And why do you think, is this intentional that we are framing things as bullying within the schools? I, is, it an, is, it an, is it like an intentional masking of civil rights violations? I think in some cases it is. But I think the most likely explanation is that they don't know what they don't know whether we're talking about superintendents in the school board or a principal or a teacher. But interestingly, even when I went into a school district and trained all of their lead teachers, the superintendent, counselors, coaches, everyone to differentiate between the two forms of misconduct, when I went back there a year later, all that they had up was posters on bullying, nothing on harassment. And when I talked to the superintendent about it, he said, oh, we've reduced our incidence of bullying. And I said, but what about harassment? And he just really couldn't even answer me. So I don't know if that part's denial. I don't know if it's because they don't want to be liable. Um, uh, a colleague and I were starting to do qualitative research in K through 12 to examine the efforts that school districts are using to both prevent and intervene on bullying and harassment. And I know here in Minnesota, they just don't know the difference when I go in and meet with them. And I even looked at the website for the state of Minnesota's board, um, uh, Minnesota Board of Education, Department of Education rather, and I had to look to try to find Title IX even on the website. And I had to call and find out, and even then the big Title IX guru for the state only deals with it with sports. So I Interesting. think it's ignorance. I think it's ignorance, and I, I don't think they want to know. Now, that's just my gut. Okay. Uh, one of the cases that I worked on, worked, I worked on it through the U.S. Department of Justice. We went into a, a school district. They were going to have to go to court unless they implemented a consent decree and what was declared in the consent decree. 
So that was all declared. So we went back a year later. This was not in Minnesota. It was in a different state to determine what had they done. Oh, my gosh. Here they knew they were going to have to probably go to court if they did not implement all of the elements from the consent decree. They didn't implement them. <laughs> and here you have the U.S. Department of Justice telling them, implement this stuff. They didn't do it. Just to clarify for our novice listeners, so um, Title IX is the federal civil rights law which prohibits sex discrimination in schools and over time and through case law and how laws evolve, Title IX protects students, employees, whistleblowers from sexual harassment in schools and that includes harassment based on real or perceived LGBTQ plus status. I wanted to ask you, are there any states that are leading the way in terms of putting Title IX information on their websites or in terms of student advocacy or in terms of comprehensive sex ed education and anti-harassment training? Who's leading the way, do you think? Well, I, I am not sure because I don't stay necessarily current in that anymore. I think that if you've been sued, generally, that makes you take notice and you make some changes. Um, Anoka Hennepin School District here in Minnesota had a huge LGBTQ lawsuit and this came about because a number of students that were LGBTQ had committed suicide. And they had both the feds, Title IX, the Department of Justice, and the state of Minnesota after them. And I know that they did make changes. Now, I do want to say something about LGBTQ, however. While Title IX recognizes it, Title VII, it's still iffy. And Title IX takes its cues from Title VII. So in October of this year, the U.S. Supreme Court heard three cases dealing with LGBTQ employees and whether Title VII was going to protect them. We, up until that point, and Title VII deals with it in the workplace, there had been mixed opinions from appellate courts. So whatever the Supreme Court opines in its finally, final decision, which we probably won't know until next June, Title IX will in all likelihood follow suit. Right now, there are 20, 23 states that protect the lesbian, bisexual, um, and gay population. There are 19 states that protect the transgender and questioning population, and that would include kids that also identify as LGBTQ. And this is going to be a real challenge if the Supreme Court does not opine that whether you're an adult or a student that you're protected. In April of 2019, the Supreme Court announced that it would consider three cases that asked whether or not to roll back civil rights protections for LGBTQ plus people under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits discrimination in employment on the basis of sex. As Dr. Strauss shared, in June of 2020, the Supreme Court was hearing three cases that asked whether or not 
Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, a provision which prohibits discrimination in employment on the basis of sex actually also protects LGBTQ plus people. The Supreme Court heard these arguments in October of 2019. And at the heart of these cases is the question, quote, does the term sex as considered in Title VII include sexual orientation and gender identity? The Supreme Court considered three related cases and combined them into one decision, Bostock v. Clayton County. These cases are about the existing protections of LGBTQ plus people in employment discrimination and specifically how Title VII's ban on sex discrimination in the workplace protects against discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. And this information comes from family equality and we are linking that in the show notes. On June 15th, 2020, the Supreme Court found in a six to three ruling written by Justice Neil Gorsuch that Title IX does deem the term sex to include sexual orientation and gender identity. I just read a study that said 50, 50 percent, that's 50 percent of Gen Z, and Gen Z is 21 and younger, do not identify as binary. 51 percent, or pardon me, 50 percent. That, that's huge. So we're going to be seeing this is going to just be more and more um, out there. I think that our listeners, and certainly I would like to hear more about how you became an expert witness and what that involves. <laughs> oh, pardon me for laughing, but I, it was a weird deal, I'll tell you. Um, I got a call one day to be on the Sally Jesse Raphael show years and years ago. So I for... Never- for- our, our listeners are, many of them, Generation Z. So this is like a talk yeah. show similar to, I think people would remember Oprah. So similar to yes. that, right? Oprah or, uh, well, there's a bunch of them. I never watched them at all. And so they called and they said, your name was given to us as an expert on sexual harassment and we want to do a program on sexual harassment. And I thought, wonderful. Wonderful, because I assumed that they meant they wanted to teach the audience, whether it was the television viewers or those in the audience, about the problem. And I thought, it was wonderful. So I was on it. For our listeners who may not know, because of the progress that that people have made through advocacy and through filing lawsuits and and um, filing uh, civil rights claims, we now have more protections 
against retaliation. So I think this might be a good time for us to talk a little about victim blaming. So victim blaming, I think, is a huge part of this conversation. Can you talk a little bit about victim blaming and why you think it's such a widespread problem? Yeah, it really is unfortunate, but the victims do get blamed. In, in your opinion, what should schools or districts or leaders do in terms of a best case scenario? So sometimes we do the bare minimum, but what can we do maximally to create better schools with less harassment and more healthy, positive climates? Well, that's a good question. I really cover a good share of that in my book, but let's Ooh, let's let's uh, let's advertise that again. Tell us, um, will you tell us what it's called, and then tell us maybe who would want to read this book and what a little bit about what it's about. Sure, it's I wrote it primarily for parents, but um, every single thing in it applies to the schools. In fact, one of the attorneys that I was working with when the book came out bought enough copies of the book and sent them to every one of the legislators in his state. And he wanted me to write in every book for the legislator because he was trying to get some bills passed. I don't That's think amazing. It was. it was amazing. Anyway, the book is called um, Sexual Harassment and Bullying, A Guide to Keeping Kids Safe and Holding Schools Accountable. And I wrote it because parents do not know the difference between bullying and harassment, nor do schools. Yep. And I wanted parents to know so that they could, in fact, keep their kids safe and hold the pedal to the ground in dealing with schools who do not work to keep their kids safe as it relates to this. And I'm not saying that's true for all schools, but for many. So that's the name of the book, uh, Sexual Harassment and Bullying, A Guide to Keeping Kids Safe and Holding Schools Accountable. So in order to deal with it, we've got to think initially about prevention. And normally when we think, how do you prevent this stuff? The typical things arise. Okay, we need good policies. We need good leadership. We need training for faculty and staff. We need educational programs for students. Um, they need to include adult learning principles for um, the adults, but for the kids, it needs to be active experiential learning. It needs to be more than just an hour, for example. Dr. Strauss, if our listeners would like to contact you, and we will link your books in our show notes, people can find them. If people want to contact you, how should they do that? Uh, well, they can contact me through my email. That would be fine. I know sometimes people contact me through my website, straussconsulting.net, and my email is susan at straussconsulting.net. So I do hear from people all the time, and if people want to send me an email, we can set up a time to talk, which I'm all game for talking on the phone more than discussing issues over email. It's just easier. Uh, but yes, feel free if anyone wants to contact me, whether it's a teacher, a superintendent, a student doing research on harassment or a parent. Oh, that'd I'm be great. Always happy. Thank you so much. And we will put your website and your email in our show notes. 
We are Educate, Caring Activist Teachers for Equity. Educate would like to thank the following for their support of this broadcast. The University of Illinois at Springfield, UIS. The College of Education and Human Services at UIS. The Department of Teacher Education at UIS. The Center for Online Learning, Research, and Service at UIS. And a very special thanks goes to our sound editor and designer, Emily Bowles, online learning and faculty development specialist at Colors, Center for Online Learning, Research, and Service at UIS. I'm Jennifer Martin. Remember, always err on the side of awesome.